Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, clotting was already a side effect of the AstraZeneca vaccine, and now Health Canada is investigating reports that a second COVID-19 vaccine may be linked to extremely rare clots. Should we be concerned? We'll talk about it. The Ontario government continues to insist that schools are safe, and the problem is in the community, but the data doesn't match that. Biostatistician and teacher Ryan Imgren joins us to talk about that. And Canada now has one of the highest rates of the new COVID-19 cases in the world, a record number of patients also in critical care. We've surpassed the United States with more cases per capita, and they're pointing the spotlight at us. How did it get this bad? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's all about vaccines today. That seems to be the topic of conversation and uh, the impact of some of these vaccines. Of course, now we're hearing that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, is being held back because of concerns, once again, about clotting that is going on. And this goes on, of course, with the AstraZeneca concerns from a couple of weeks ago, too. Global's Reggie Cicchini has more details for us. Clotting was already a known side effect with AstraZeneca, leading to a global question about its efficacy and a delay in U.S. approval. On Tuesday morning, clotting associated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine led to an immediate conversation from American health agencies. Six clotting incidents were identified in women where one death was reported. It averages one clot per million doses, leaving doctors to remind the public that any vaccine is safe compared to no vaccine. Still, federal sites are widely expected to halt administering doses until more information is available. Across state-run sites, the decision would be in their purview. The news is a blow to states experiencing major upticks in caseloads and to Canada, which anticipated millions of doses later this month. Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca use similar technologies, different from Moderna and Pfizer, which doctors think could play a role. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So, are you concerned about this? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of talk about this in the last little while. And what is the impact? And uh, let's try to get some details about this uh, amid all the speculation. Uh, tonight, and we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Brian Litchie, who is an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine with McMaster's Immunology Research Center. Doctor, thank you as always. Great to have you back on the show today. Hi, great to be back. The AstraZeneca story is not new, of course. We've been talking about that for a little while, and there was some concern about some of the cases over in the Europe uh, 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 distribution of the vaccine. Uh, we've had some Canadian examples of this now, Johnson & Johnson. Should we be worried? Well, um, I would say not. Um, as was noted in that, that news clip, it, right now it looks like uh, overall it's about one in a million um, recipients of the vaccine experiences some sort of blood clotting that may be associated with the vaccine. They're learning more about how this is happening. Um, there's another drug called heparin that um, many of your listeners may have heard of. It's commonly, relatively commonly used to deal with blood clots, and it's saved lots of lives, and it's still used. But that drug, um, in a rare instance, causes what seems to be the same sort of reaction where um, the immune system... Um, recognizes this the treatment or the drug in um, an unusual way that lead that triggers um, a reaction by the clotting system uh, that shouldn't happen and leads to spontaneous clotting um, and that's sort of all that's known right now it's something that has been seen before with one other drug and that drug continues to be used just like uh, these vaccines should continue to be used what we're learning is that certain populations are that are the ones that are at risk, and that's why they're trying to figure out who should get the vaccine 
and maybe who should get a different vaccine. Yeah, the uh, well, again, I'm just looking at anecdotal information about this so far, and it just seems as if females may be a little more prone to, to the clotting uh, than males, at least in the cases that have been reported so far anyway. Maybe maybe we should just backtrack a little bit, Doctor, and talk a little bit about blood clotting in and of itself. Uh, it happens, and I'm not going to say it happens all the time, but, I mean, there are many, many instances, uh, sometimes reaction to, to things, that you know, narcotics and, and medications that we may take, but uh, I, I can remember going on long flights, uh, you know, always being told, We'll get up and walk around because you you could develop clots if you're sitting for more than four or five hours. So this is this is not a new phenomena, is it? No, no, not at all. And that's you know important to remember. And it makes it very challenging to determine whether or not when this occurs within a couple few weeks of somebody receiving a vaccine or doing anything, um, whether or not that thing they did or received has anything to do with a clot that shows up later because, like you said, it happens. Um, some people are more prone than others, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, there is something, you know, the, the type of clotting that is occurring in some of these typically younger women, um, which is the, the group they're really focusing on right now, uh, was sufficiently unusual, I guess, in terms of where and how it occurs that it raised some red flags. It reminded some experts of, and actually some of the, the world-leading experts are here in Hamilton, Eric Master, uh, John Calton and his colleagues. They, uh, you know, they pointed out that this reminds them of this heparin-induced um, clotting phenomenon that, that, that has been studied um, previously, and now they're looking at it in, in sort of those, those veins. So... Um, that'll help them figure this out maybe quicker than they did with the heparin scenario um, and understand when it, it might happen, and it'll help understand how regulatory um, regulators and uh, the, the medical community know who should not receive the vaccine because they're a slightly higher risk. But again, these risks are really, really low. It's kind of hard for people to wrap their heads around you know, one in a million odds but it's it's very rare i i know one of your colleagues pastor dr shagler told me last week he says there is a risk of blood clotting but he says there's also a risk getting struck by lightning going to get your vaccine too and it's about yeah. the same and uh, and i i don't mean to be flippant about that but as no. you mentioned it happens i did a little research into this this morning uh, about the clotting itself and uh, you mentioned some of those things. It can be a side effect about medications. It can be a birth control medications. Hormone replacement therapy can cause clotting. Sometimes pregnancy can. Long trips, I said. Smoking apparently can. There's it's a pretty long list there, isn't there? Yeah, it is. Um, but, of course, we don't want to put people at undue risk. And so no, of course not. The, the public health balance that is a very, you know, people should think about what it must be like to have to make these decisions because it's really not easy uh, for folks on, on, you know, NASI and so forth to give recommendations because by now we know pretty well the um, likelihood that infection by the coronavirus will put you in the hospital. And we know with the variants, if you end up in the hospital, you know, there's a 40% chance you're going to end up in ICU and a decent chance you're not going to come out of there. So there's a risk there that we're learning you know, more and more about week by week, right? Um, mm -hmm. And the variants, some of them seem to be more dangerous. So that's what we know. And then we have these vaccines that, that 
will protect 80, 95% of people from that outcome. And you got to kind of do the math and figure out for different populations whether it's wise to take the vaccine or to take a particular vaccine or to take a different vaccine. And that's how they're sort of having to figure out where uh, to direct these vaccines. So the math says that absolutely, if you're over 55, you should be willing to take the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine if it's available, because you're more likely to get severely infected by the COVID vaccine, by Mm -hmm. the virus, right? But if you're a female, you know, in your 30s or 40s, you probably should take the mRNA vaccine instead. In a situation like that, and I know that we're kind of speculating here, Doctor, because like you say, you're still trying to explore exactly what's going on and what's causing this. But when you, when it's specific to a certain age demographic like that, is, is it because the body chemistry can change uh, as, as we get older? Uh, and, and maybe, you know, as you say, the plus 55s are, are not going to be prone to this. Somebody maybe 35, 40 might be. Did we lose the doctor? Oh, we've lost him. Okay. We'll try to hook up with him again in just a couple of seconds then. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Brian Litchie, of course, from McMaster University's immunology department, and uh, talking about some of the concerns about uh, the vaccines uh, that have been raised over the last couple of weeks. We already knew about the AstraZeneca concerns, and and, and, and that resulted in, of course, in a change of strategy. Uh, you know, initially they thought people, uh, you know, they kind of used the 55 to 60 group and said, well, you know, if you're older than that, you shouldn't get it. Uh, but then, of course, the people that already had received the vaccine – started reporting back and they said no 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 we got that we reversed that now we got that wrong uh now they're suggesting people over 50 should get the astrazeneca vaccine but there's some concern about younger people and it seems to be essentially younger females uh that are are dealing with the the blood clotting issue and now the johnson and johnson uh vaccine uh, the u.s federal drug administration of course has uh stepped in and said look let's just hold off on giving the j and j vaccine until we find out exactly what is happening here so it is a concern but as as dr litchie told us uh we, we have to weigh that as we do with any vaccine really against the net benefit and the net benefit of course is to try to uh, ensure that we're not going to become victims of the COVID-19 pandemic especially some of the variants that we're dealing with now so I mean that and that's good advice obviously I think we've got uh, Dr. Litchie back with us I uh, don't know what happened there the, the remote broadcasting stuff this is a one of the little gremlins that happens from time to time doctor thanks for hanging in there with us I appreciate it yeah I think it was my cell phone dropped the call unfortunately sorry oh it happens to that too uh the question I was asking you was uh, was uh, you know, when, when it's it's the concerns seem to be towards a certain demographic, a certain age demographic, mid to thirties, maybe forties, uh, and not to people over fifty-five in situations like that. Is it because our bodies themselves change, and uh, what you know we may have been you know prone to at one age, we we grow out of because of the changes in chemistry, or vice versa. Yeah, I wouldn't say chemistry. It's more this is immune reaction. So this is a. A rare immune reaction against something in the vaccines that um, then cross-reacts, let's say, with components of the clotting system and triggers clotting. Um, and people's immune systems vary quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. How well people will respond to the vaccine varies um, based on, you know, genetics and. Um, age and a bunch of other factors and and gender so um you know women have different immune systems to some degree than men um especially during childbearing years and so 
they um, may react differently to something like a vaccine than men of the same age. So there can be differences, obviously, because of gender and situations like that. Mm -hmm. Are you surprised that that these concerns didn't show up during the testing? I mean, every one of these medications, before they received approval, of course, I went through rigorous testing, and we've talked about that extensively, of course, about the different phases of the testing. Uh, If there was going to be something like this crop up, uh, is it unusual that it didn't show up in any of those those phases? It's it's very much a numbers game. Um, In this pandemic, uh, situation where they were in a, in a obviously a big hurry. Um, they still um, tested this in tens of thousands of healthy volunteers and looked hard at the data before you know these things were approved. But uh, that's not a million, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, the odds that you would see this in say fifty thousand people is very low. And even if you did see it, you might see it once, and you would not necessarily be um, um, able to attribute it to the vaccine. Like we've talked about, it's hard to know whether you know anything's connected to anything if it happens once in fifty thousand. Which, of course, is obviously why you're doing the investigations into this as to what is causing this. I mean, is it, as you say, is there a pre-existing condition that maybe makes them more vulnerable? Is it some other medication that they could be taking for something else? Uh, There's a a variety, I guess, of of possible causes for this, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I believe there's some um, thinking that in the the case that we're more familiar with, with the drug heparin, that um, some people may have an unknown, unfortunately, predisposition to reacting that way. Um, uh, the other thing I think uh, you missed when I, my phone died was I was comparing this a little bit because a lot of people are familiar with it. It's quite different, but it's another instance of you know immune systems doing something they shouldn't and and being dangerous to you know fairly rare individuals is peanut allergy. Uh, we all know of that, I think, that there are certain, usually children, so it's age-dependent, who have, and it may last for varying lengths of time, sometimes their whole life, where they have this incredibly strong reaction to peanut that just happens. And there's lots of theories about you know why that occurs occasionally, but it, it's that sort of category of the immune system doing something differently in certain individuals that leads to um, a strong reaction that's that's unwanted. But the takeaway here, just about out of time, is that get the vaccine. I mean, as as, as you have told us in the past, and others, of course, have, have weighed in on this, uh, you have to weigh the, the benefit against the, the possible risks in here. And, and just about everybody I've talked to, including yourself, Doc, who say, look, at the, the benefits far outweigh the potential risk in a situation like that, especially given what's going on right now with the variants in this third wave. Yeah, and um, the truth is they're being more cautious than than the, the fairly extreme math would would suggest. So, like you said, it's mostly being females um, uh, of a certain age category. But to be overly cautious for now, they've they've said everyone under fifty five get the other vaccine. But because it has, we've not seen this in people over fifty five, and we need to vaccinate these people. Um, and it's a good vaccine, then we'll use it in that population and, and 
and that may change over time, but right now that's the best advice that anyone can give. Uh, Doctor, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for staying with us today. Really appreciate it. No problem. Have a good day. You too. Dr. Brian Litchie, of course, uh, from the McMaster Immunology Research Center, uh, talking about the concerns about vaccines. And if you're scheduled to get it, get it. By all means, uh, we've got some terrific stories about people uh, that have not had this and, of course, have got the virus as a result of this. And, uh, this, well, we've talked to people in the hospitals and ICUs, and it's not a situation that you want to be in. So get the vaccine. Get the shot. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things that I, I think people are really, really getting frustrated about, of course, is, is misinformation and conflicting information from our elected leaders. These are the people that are supposed to be setting policies and telling us what we should be doing or not doing uh, to try to, uh, to stop the, the virus and obviously to try to stay as healthy as we possibly can. Uh, one of those areas here, of course, in Ontario is uh, the closing of schools, the opening of schools, and we, from one day to the next, don't really know what's going on. I mentioned yesterday on the program that uh, Sunday, uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce sent a letter out basically saying that schools are the safest place for kids to be, and their, their priority was to make sure that those kids stayed in school. Uh, Twelve hours later, he's standing beside the Premier saying, no, we're going to shut them down for uh, well, an indeterminate amount of time. Uh, but the Premier sticks by his policies. This is what he had to say. The problem is not in our schools, it is in our community. And bringing our kids back to a congregate setting in school after a week off in the community is a risk that I won't take. Uh, There are those that take exception to uh, the Premier's assertion that the problem is not in the schools and it's in the community, uh, including our next guest, Ryan Ingrid, is a biostatistician and teacher who's been studying this and uh, doing the number crunching. Uh, And, uh, well, the numbers tell a much different story than the Premier seems to be telling us. Ryan, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, you can understand how people are getting a little, first of all, mystified by this and, and, and frustrated uh, because we're hearing different messages of Jeetson every day. And we seem to also now, Ryan, be hearing conflicting messages from our elected leaders as opposed to our, our medical experts in, in many of these situations. Yeah, we're hearing very, very different information. But I think one of the things that we need to point out is that, okay, well, there seems to be this argument about schools. Well, the thing is, when we move schools to a remote environment, we see cases drop. We saw it in Sudbury. We saw it in Thunder Bay. Think back to how Thunder Bay was at the end of January, at the start of February, when they reopened their schools first. They were still in a lockdown, but they reopened their schools first. They didn't have any of these hybrid measures that the GTA has, and Thunder Bay spun out of control. March 1st, Thunder Bay shut down schools again because the cases were so high. Where is Thunder Bay now? They're almost in a green zone with how few cases they have up there. Sudbury followed through March 15th. They were able to drop cases as well. Now, it's interesting because Thunder Bay and Sudbury were in that exact same gray zone as Peel and Latrona were. Those areas saw cases increase. Sudbury, Thunder Bay saw cases decrease. Literally, the only difference in non-pharmaceutical interventions was the closure of schools. If you see that data, why doesn't the government see it? Well, or do they, or do they ignore it? They, they see the data. I mean, I, you know, send out this data all the time. It's seen by hundreds, thousands of people, and there's this willful ignorance about schools. I think the issue is if you choose to look at schools as being a place where you can pass COVID nineteen from one person to the next, you need to invest money in schools. But instead. If we sell this false narrative that schools are safe, we don't have to invest further money in our schools 
and we can do things like hand sanitizer and other little measures like that that don't really have any effect. And that's what's being done here in Ontario. We're focusing on not having to spend money in schools by selling that false narrative that schools do not transmit COVID-19. So what are we faced with here? I think what we want to see is a government that is is absorbing the information from the medical experts and, and the data, for instance, that you accumulate, and, and, and developing policy along those lines based on that information. What we seem to be getting right now is a government that has a mindset uh, and is developing policy to try to, to validate that mindset, notwithstanding the information that they're getting. That's exactly it. It should be the data telling a story, not a story that we want to tell, and then we pick and choose data that sells that story. It's always interesting. Whenever we hear the minister talk about schools, he runs to these stats about 99.8%, 99.6% this, using these artificially very high numbers instead of numbers. I mean, what I could say is, yeah, sure, 98% of students have never had COVID-19. What I could also say is 13,000 students have had COVID-19. And you can see how those numbers, 98% and 13,000, they tell a very, very different story. And yet they're talking about the exact same thing. Yeah, well, again, that's the whole thing about numbers. I mean, anybody can twist them and turn them to try to suit their own purpose here. Uh, but which is why I guess they're developing policies like this. I mean, I'm talking to a teacher about this a couple of days ago, uh, and of course they're not being immunized. They, should, you know, they're frontline workers in the school system, but apparently, uh, you know, it hasn't happened yet, and as it should be happening, I think anyway. Uh, and I, I said the reason why is because they, they, the, the message they're trying to tell everybody here is that schools are safe, so you're not in any danger of getting it. And he said, well, that's not the case. And I said, well, that's what the government says, and you know, they're, they're the ones pulling the strings right now. Well, it's interesting because here in the, the province, we're in a lockdown where we're shutting things down. We're keeping people at home. Well, it doesn't make sense that we can seemingly transmit this virus inside of a restaurant, but students can't transmit it while eating lunch at a school. We're, you know, we shut down uh, hockey practices. We shut down basketball practices, but students can't transmit it in a gym class at a school. I, I don't understand how one works and one doesn't. But what we do know is that when we lock down, and once again, nobody wants a lockdown, but when we lock down, when we force people to stay at home, like we did in uh, January, we see cases drop. So why are schools any different? Why is indoor eating at a school okay and safe, but indoor eating at a restaurant is unsafe? We need to close down the restaurant, even for outdoor dining. I'm sure you saw the study that was done, uh, published in France, of course, uh, from a, an organization, Paris-based organization called the Institut Economique Molinari, uh, which basically said that you know there are three choices to fight the virus, and and one, of course, is mitigation, which is what we're doing. In other words, kind of you know a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and hopefully not getting too many people ticked off of the government. Uh, the other, of course, was called zero COVID, which basically means we're shutting everything down for like three weeks, four weeks, whatever. Places like New Zealand and Australia did that. Uh, they haven't just flattened the curve, Ryan, with their, they've, they've defeated it. I mean, they did, this New Zealand didn't have a second or third wave. It's gone. They, they got rid of it. Uh, yet we seem to be doing things on a piecemeal basis right now, and the numbers are getting worse. Yeah, I strongly feel that here in Ontario, we should be going for a COVID zero approach. I mean, mind you, it's a little bit more challenging when we're seeing around 4,000 cases per day. But even if you don't agree with that philosophy, really what it comes down to is that we should be using data to drive any decisions that we saw. We heard back at the, the government press conferences back on February 11th, we had reporters saying to the modelers, 
with the government right there, you're predicting a disaster in April. Am I getting this wrong? And the modeler's response is, no, you're not getting this wrong. That's February 11th. March the 10th is when I first knew that here in Ontario, we've entered this third wave. That's when you need to start to implement some of those restrictions at that time. What what does Ontario do? We start to open up. We see some regions like York Region say, well, we know we're in the red. We know we're about to enter this third wave, but we feel we should be in orange. No, that's the time that you need to strengthen some of those non-pharmaceutical interventions. But what we did is the second we were about to enter that third wave, we weakened them. And we weakened them when we had a variant that is much more highly transmissible. And that's exactly why we're in this state right now. Instead of acting March 10th and doing something March 10th, we're acting April 10th and doing something way too late. And now we have to come down from a much, much higher case count. And and it was it was the the premier's own panel. I mean, the science panel that that you know they struck to try to be an advisory panel for this. That told him in February, and you and I had that discussion back in those days. Uh, that don't do this. Don't open anything up right now. You a hard lockdown for three weeks, uh, and and we can get this thing under control. And they ignored that advice, as you say. They went the total opposite way and started opening things up uh, against the advice of those experts. And we see what's happened and everything. Especially, I guess the most galling thing is, is I'm sure you saw the quote from. The Solicitor General a couple of weeks ago when she was talking on a CBC interview basically said, well, we didn't move on it because we wanted to see if the projections they were talking about were actually going to come true. In other words, they waited for the worst to happen and then they responded to it. That's that's not leadership. No, that's not. And I think it's, it's interesting because, I mean, sure, the first wave was a little bit harder to model because it's a brand new pandemic. We don't know what's going on. But still, a lot of the modeling um, around like April 2020 was right. Then came the second wave. And around like August, September, a lot of people were saying then, you know what, it's September, you need to act now, you need to make schools safer, you need to do these things, or else we're going to see cases go up, and you're going to have to go into another lockdown. What happens around Christmas time? We go into another lockdown. We see cases drop. February comes, we're seeing signs that a third wave is coming. We need to act now. What do we do? We wait for the numbers to come in, and we act two months later. There's a pattern of ignorance by this government, a failure to respond to data, and a failure to respond to modeling that has proved to be accurate. I don't get it. I want to ask you about the vaccine rollout, too, because I know you've been studying that as well, and, and obviously very controversial. Uh, and there's a lot of finger-pointing going on here, and, and you know, and I'm not going to absolve the, the federal government here because I think they've really blown this whole thing. Uh, and you know, the world is watching right now. We're starting to get reports from other jurisdictions now that say, you know, poor Canada, look at how bad things are going up in that country. Uh, and, and that's to a certain extent on the federal government, certainly because they're in charge of procurement. But the dissemination of the vaccines themselves, I have a problem with. Uh, you know, we, we were told there was going to be a priority list and we had some idea as to what they wanted to do. Uh, but I'm hearing a lot more information that it's not going that way at all. And, and, and that's being done in an arbitrary fashion, too. Yeah, it certainly is. And in fact, I'll be honest. Um, I mean, yeah, the federal government is at fault here for not ensuring that we have enough vaccines. But the the provincial government is at fault here for not allowing local public health units and hospitals to do whatever they want with these vaccines. And that seems to be what's happening now. We're seeing health units, we're seeing hospitals vaccinate whoever they feel they should be vaccinating. Um, Here in Toronto, um, we had a hospital in Scarborough um, that said, you know what, we're going to choose to vaccinate these 16-year-old students. Now, yes, there were underlying medical conditions in those students, 
but they went out to a school, they did a school clinic, and they, you know, hit up these 16-year-old students. They were the only hospital in all of Ontario that vaccinated 16-year-olds. Now, that exact same hospital is saying, we don't have vaccines, so we can vaccinate those that are 50 and up. Well, right, because you made your own priorities, and that's what we're seeing. Not just one hospital, we're seeing this at almost every public health unit and every hospital is choosing to vaccinate who they want to vaccinate. But I do think it does come down from the province. They should have said, here's who you're vaccinating. Here's who the vaccines are for. Here's a provincial booking system. Here's what you need to do. Instead, we gave public health units way too much flexibility. We gave hospitals way too much flexibility. And now we're in this mess now that we have 4 million vaccines, but we've only really administered around 3 million of them. I, I saw your tweet about this the other day, too, and how, how can I phrase this? Some of the people who have received the vaccine, uh, their, their qualifications for getting toward the front of the line is is rather tenuous. I mean, you know, some of these people, as you mentioned in the tweet, are re- working remotely these days, uh, so they're not really on the front line, notwithstanding what their their job title might be. If you're not dealing with other people and you're living uh, out of your home and working out of your home, are you really a, a priority? Are you really a frontline worker? Right. I have no issue with frontline healthcare workers being vaccinated first, even before those that are 80 plus, maybe alongside those that were 80 plus and in long term care facilities. I have no issue with that. I have an issue with healthcare workers that are not facing patients that are 25 years old being vaccinated. I have a huge issue when we have healthcare workers that are in their 20s and 30s that are working remotely, that are able to work remotely being vaccinated. And now we have a hard time vaccinating, you know, 50 year olds that are in hotspot zones where we want to stop cases. We really messed this up from January. We, you know, we called out the hospitals, we called out the public health units, we called out the, the government, and they chose to do nothing. And this once again, fits into the whole theme of this conversation today. We've had a government that hasn't taken leadership here. And when you don't take leadership, you have too many hands in the pot. And we have too many hands in the pot you have too many decisions being made, some which will be right, some which will be wrong. And, and I'm, I'm of the same ilk. I mean, frontline workers to me are, are, as you say, the people that are working in primary care hospitals and things of this nature that are dealing with the public and, and are at risk, you know, and we can go into, you know, first responders. Uh, I still think, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the teachers uh, should qualify for that if they're going to keep the schools open, uh, that they're something that needs to be included. But then we were also told uh, that people that have pre-existing conditions, autoimmune diseases, cancer patients, uh, where their immune systems are, are, are being ravaged by medications and some cases sometimes by the disease that they should move to the top of the list and that hasn't happened yet either i just i i they, you know they're not doing what they said they were going to do and i think that's causing a great deal of angst in the community right and i agree with that and i think that's where you know some of the, the challenge comes in where you know frankly someone needs to step in and say you know what that's an issue if you have someone that is young that is immunocompromised do we vaccinate them before someone that is 50 plus and in a hot spot that is not immunocompromised i think that's where you could do them in like tandem. You don't have to do one group over the other. You, you open up the booking system and you see who books in those regards right there. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying, no, 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 it must be the 50 plus year old. It must be this group right here. And even though there's some public health units that you know, may respond by saying, well, no, no, we're allowing both groups to simultaneously book. Yes, you are, but you're setting aside vaccines for each of those groups. And if you're in some of those groups in some of those areas, and you go to get a vaccine, there's no appointments available for the next three to four weeks. But if you're in some of the other groups, you go to the websites, they're available 
immediately. And, and then there's the hot spots. And I, I mean, we're going down a, a shopping list here, I know, but it, it, it's another one of these situations that I think just adds to the concern and the frustration. Uh, they said, here are the criteria to, to qualify as a hot spot here in the province. And some of them are no-brainers. Peel region, as you mentioned, places like that. They list, listed 114 different by area code. Four of them don't even meet the criterion, but they're getting, they've been designated as hot spots and they're going to get more vaccines. Uh, those four, by the way, they don't meet the criteria, all have progressive conservative MPPs. Uh, there are five other areas that were excluded from that that exceed the criteria. They're not on the list, uh, which happen to be, uh, coincidentally, I'm supposing, opposition MPPs in the Ontario legislature. Now, of course, the government's denying that politics has anything to do with it. But, boy, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I mean, again, it comes back to the idea, should these people be in charge of this? Should there not be somebody who's independently looking at this and doing what's best for the population without any influences about you know, who's doing what? Or who contributed to what? Yeah, the hotspot designations were very, very troubling. They don't they seem to be based on historical data going back to like April twenty twenty. And we know that this like pandemic changes over time. I think, you know, the other thing as well, which you mentioned too, is that okay, that's fine if we're doing hotspots, but I think the issue is why don't we introduce some granularity within those hotspots? We don't need to say, okay, you live in a hotspot, you're eighteen through forty nine. 18 to 49, let's get you vaccinated. Maybe let's say, you know what, let's start with those that are 40 and up in this hotspot, essential workers. Then we can go down to those that are 30 and up, essential workers, and those that are 40 and up and that are not essential workers. Instead, we're doing this whole like blanket hotspot vaccination, which means that in you know some areas we're seeing, you know, I'll use Scarborough as an example once again, they're vaccinating 16-year-olds because they live in the hotspot, they meet the, the criteria which they have. And in my opinion, nowhere ever should a 16-year-old be vaccinated before a 55-year-old. It just doesn't make sense at all. You look at the mortality data, you look at the hospitalization data, to vaccinate a 16-year-old before someone that is in their 50s, or if you look at some of these northern Ontario communities that haven't received vaccines before someone that is in their 70s, I mean, that really borders on negligence. Ryan, always great to get you on the program. Uh, you, you've got the numbers, you've got the data, and uh, you know, I, I just wish they'd pay more attention to it in the halls of uh, government where they're making these decisions. Uh, we'll certainly stay in touch with you. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Take it easy. You too. Ryan Ingram, of course, biostatistician and teacher, uh, giving you the, the real data about what's going on here. And it's a, it's a very muddled picture at this point, too. And that's just not the sort of thing that we need when we're fighting a third wave like this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada is front and center on the world stage right now when it comes to our, our pandemic response and our vaccine rollout, and uh, it's not in a good light. Uh, a number of different news organizations and uh, publications have uh, focused on Canada for falling way behind uh, many, many other countries, including, of course, the United States. As a matter of fact, just the other day, uh, CNN's Jake Tapper and Paula Newton were discussing the struggle of Canada's vaccine rollout and lack of manufacturing. Jake, look, this is a problem. You have to rewind decades to really get to the heart of this problem, but that doesn't let the Trudeau government off the hook. Uh, they've been in power for more than five years. They heard the dire predictions. This country for decades had a competitive advantage in making vaccines. The research was right here. But look, Canadians will now pay for that complacency. Trudeau promises that domestic manufacturing will ramp up next year. Jake, you and I both know it's just too late at this point in time. This third wave is punishing. I am speaking to doctors, especially in the hotspot of Toronto. You know, Jake, they are letting people into the sick children's hospital, adults, 
in order to be able to treat them for COVID. Uh, a lot of things to talk about here, including the fact that even though the dire predictions were there, no government acted for decades on the vaccine rollout. Yeah, it's a real failure by the Trudeau government, and our Canadian cousins deserve a lot better. Uh, here, here, uh, a sentiment that's echoed by so many people on this side of the border as well. So what happened? Where, where did we go uh, from just a few months ago when the Prime Minister was saying that we had more vaccines available to us per capita than any other country in the world? And this is before any of the vaccines were being delivered, of course. And now, well, you just heard the folks at CNN describing exactly uh, what's happening in this country right now. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's nice to talk to you. Uh, this is It's always great when we get national recognition and international recognition, but this is for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's always interesting, interesting when we make CNN, but yeah, this isn't, this isn't the kind of story, the kind of coverage that we want to have for sure. It's uh, interesting to see how, how our progress with the vaccine is now being juxtaposed with the United States. I mean, for a long time, obviously, Canada was, was sort of you know, able, to, able to gloat about how well we were managing the curve and the spread of COVID-19 as compared to the U.S., but now that the focus is on the vaccines, instead of, you know, and at the same time as the spread, right? Like, but, but obviously with the introduction of the vaccines, the conversation is very different. And then, and now the statistics look very different too. And you're right. I mean, how difference, you know, what a difference rather just a couple of months makes uh, before the Biden administration took over. I mean, I, I think a lot of us were kind of looking south of the border and say, boy, these guys don't even have their act together. Look mm -hmm. at the number of new cases. Look at this. And we seem to be doing pretty well, all things considered, especially compared to a lot of other countries in the world. Why, where did we fall apart? I mean, because, you know, we've gone from first to worst almost. Yeah, I mean, I read a really interesting article. I'm sure a lot of a lot of other people read this article, too, in the New York Times, where they were talking about how um, some of the countries that did really well in terms of managing the spread before the vaccine mm -hmm. didn't do as well in the vaccine rollout. And there's lots of different reasons why that might be the case. Right. And so and I heard the prime minister, too, you know, when he said yesterday that he's got he has no apologies to make, no regrets about how we've handled things. But I mean, I think when you're looking at the different factors that affect where we are now, obviously the fact that we don't have manufacturing capacity is a factor. Um, you know, you, you could argue that the fact that Canada is such a spread out population and we have two orders of government, on the one hand, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be any slow rollout, but it, you know, that'll be something that, that people study in years to come is whether that was a complicating factor. And I mean, I think at this point, we like you can look to at different experiences with a vaccine across the country, not just in terms of provinces, but in terms of communities. And we hear that anecdotal evidence come through. Some people say, hey, look, you know, I, I got my vaccine quick. Everything was great. And other people are saying, hey, my vaccine appointment was canceled. And so I think even the kind of reports that we're hearing about how this is going is making people really stop and think, hang on, what's what's really going on here? Well, yeah, because we're getting mixed messages from the government. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I listen, I'm never going to hold my breath waiting for a politician to say, hey, I blew that, sorry, uh, <laughs> because it doesn't happen very often. And I, I'm not expecting it from either the prime minister or the premier. And I think there's some culpability all around here, not just with this premier in Ontario. I'm talking most of others, except 
as, as, as it turns out, uh, in your neck of the woods, uh, the Atlantic provinces, Premier, seem to have their act together on this, and uh, they seem to understand the severity of this. And, and I'm, I'm hearing positive things about the vaccine rollout, because they don't have enough, of course. That's, that's a national problem. Uh, but they seem to understand exactly what sort of policies need to be made. And I'm not seeing that sort of consistency across the rest of the country. Uh, what, what's going on in, in, out in the Atlantic provinces that, uh, that they seem to be that much more in tune with what needs to be done? Yeah, so there too, like it's, it's, you know, probably a few different factors at work here. Like one thing in, in the Atlantic provinces, of course, is that, you know, the population is, is a lot smaller. Sure. And so um, we have always been working in this part of the country to a kind of zero baseline. Like our, we want to see no COVID, you know, like it's, you know, in some parts of the country, if you only see X amount a day, if you see, you know, a couple of hundred cases a day, that would be good news depending on, on what you've seen in the past, right? Like where, mm-hmm. where your kind of trends are. For us in Atlantic Canada, we wake up every morning thinking, hopefully there's no cases, hopefully there's no new cases. And a lot of times that is the, that is the fact, right? Like that is the way things are. And so the whole expectation around COVID management is different. People expect to hear zero cases are pretty close and people have zero, like no tolerance for any creep up in the numbers whatsoever. And so um, in the spring last year, the premiers made the decision that they would come together and do this Atlantic bubble so that people would be able to travel throughout the four Atlantic provinces, but anybody coming in would have to isolate. And I mean, that has had its criticisms too. But at the same time, when we were able to bubble the four of us together, it did help the economy keep going, um, you know, kind of help to mitigate some of the, the traffic that we lost from the rest of the country. Now we are seeing a few cases come up and people are getting a bit uncomfortable. So the bubble was supposed to open again on Monday, and I think it's not going to do that. The provincial boundaries are going to be in place for another while. Uh, well, yeah, we saw the premier make the announcement yesterday that, uh, you know, because, uh, as you say, they're starting to crop up. He says, yeah, you know what, we're, we're, we're hitting the pause button here. Uh, mm-hmm. But that takes that takes political courage uh, because we know that there's an awful lot of pressure on every elected leader these days to say, look, you know, we don't need to be going to draconian measures. But the ones that are effective, and you mentioned, uh, obviously, the Atlantic provinces, and, you know, we talked earlier in the program about New Zealand, Australia, uh, a number of South Asian countries that did this. They've done COVID zero. They simply said, look, we're going to, this is going to be tough for a few weeks, but it's what we do. And, and as opposed to the mitigation that a lot of other provinces, including Ontario, have gone through right now, uh, we're, you know, we're still talking about flattening the curve and where what you've done in the eastern provinces and the maritime provinces and what they've done in New Zealand and Australia is they've eliminated the curve. It's gone. I mean, there, you know, there was no second or third wave in New Zealand. And I get it. You're the same circumstance, I guess, doctor. You know, it's not a huge population, uh, but it is, you know, it, it, it's very condensed there and there's still a concern. But they took the drastic measures. And I don't know that the political will is here for us to be like that. And I mean, obviously, the factors confronting every premier are a little different when you're the economic center of the country. It's, it's, that's a different kind of decision to make. And, mm-hmm. and so, I, I mean, I think every premier ideally would love to be in a position where they're, they're saying, hey, you know, we see five cases, we're going to shut things down for a while. It does take political will. It absolutely does. And, you know, I give the, the premiers in Atlantic, the Atlantic provinces credit for that. But at the same time, in my view, there's there's not really any space between for those premiers, their political, you know, what makes sense to them politically and what makes sense from a public health perspective, because we've been able to manage it so well. Now, the expectation is really like zero COVID or close to zero COVID. And so people expect the premiers to take that hard action to make and take it right away to make sure that there is no spread 
people are really, you know, in that mindset. And especially like now we're sort of people have that sense of a home stretch. We're almost there. People are getting their vaccines. OK, you know, let's just sort of keep managing this and get, get out of this. One of the big problems I think we've made here, too, and just as my observation, uh, in parts of the country like Ontario that haven't done a very good job of controlling this virus, especially the, the variants of the virus, uh, they're looking at the vaccine program as, as this is what's going to fix everything. Don't worry, boys. When we get the needle in your arm, everything's <laughs> going to be fine. Uh, and and it's not the, there's a sense of urgency here because we see the numbers climbing as quickly as they are. Uh, and you can't keep up with that, with that sort of expectation. Whereas in, in the Atlantic provinces, and, and certainly as we mentioned in the, uh, the other countries that have done the COVID zero, there's no sense of urgency. Yes, they want to be vaccinated, but it's not as if, my God, this, the virus is everywhere, because it's not. Uh, so they can they can be a lot more, I guess, cool about this whole thing. Uh, we're looking like, you know, vaccinate me really, really quickly so I don't get this. Uh, we're not doing the preventive things right now. We're simply thinking, well, the vaccine is going to solve everything. And that, that was never uh, what we were told, but that seems to be what we're leaning toward now. I mean, yeah, like that's that's the thing is is that in, in the Atlantic provinces, every you know, at the same time, I mean, people are very eager to... to to get these vaccines rolled out, but at the same time, you're right. There's not the same kind of frantic, urgent emergency race against time sort of thing where we're relying on the vaccine to make sh- to get rid of COVID. And the prime minister did say, you know, like we we can't take that strategy. We have to continue with social distancing. We have to continue with the measures that we don't we, we're not happy doing, but we have to do it so that we can manage the spread and not kind of be overwhelmed. And we're seeing that overwhelming now, like that hospitals being overwhelmed and there being serious concerns about, you know, what is going to happen if the cases keep rising and we don't have the capacity, health systems are being overwhelmed, some communities more than other communities. And so we have to be really strategic around vaccinating hotspots and making sure that we're being, you know, really smart about that. But at the same time, knowing we may, you know, we are not out of the woods by any stretch. But at the same time, the governments are still saying, yep, everybody are going to have their first shot by June and the second shot by September. And so... I think we're seeing the governments trying to keep people calm and keep um, kind of working with vaccine confidence, which is a huge part of this. And then also making sure that that vaccine confidence is being experienced across communities and not just, you know, not just for some people, but that there's across the board confidence in vaccines. And that's a big part of it at the same time as, as opposition parties are criticizing the government's rollout and their strategy as not being adequate. That that's an important part too. That you know to have that confidence in the vaccine program in and of itself. And I know there was an Ipsos poll that came out yesterday that suggested about I think it was about seventy three percent of people that they surveyed uh, said yeah they're really willing and able to get the vaccine uh, as soon as they can. And that's up about twenty percent over the last four or five months. So that seems to be growing, which is a good news story. But when we get stories about well you know the blood clotting issue and the Johnson and Johnson and the mm-hmm. AstraZeneca, uh, that that's that's got to erode some of that confidence. And and that's that, that's a, another factor I guess that we have to consider uh about you know who wants to actually roll their sleeve up and how effective this program can be well that's it and then and it's you know about the information and making sure that there aren't mixed messages and so i i you know jumping around and channel surfing last night i listened to dr fauci on cnn talking about you know the the reality of some of these cases of blood clots cropping up and why didn't we see that in the testing phase and i mean the truth is obviously this has been a hugely um you know quick rollout and, and development of these vaccines. And so, you know, even if it wasn't, it would, it would still be the case that, yes, when you go to general population, and I'm not a medical expert here, I'm just mm-hmm. saying what I think I, I understand, um, you know, you are going to see some of that come up. But at the same time, being able to reinforce the message that 
get the vaccine, get whatever one you can. They are safe. They do work. And, you know, we're seeing public health officials who are the ones who, who should be delivering those messages because they have the expertise. We see them on television, radio, Twitter saying, you know, here, here is the data. Here are the data about why this works. And I think that goes to a lot, um, you know, into building that vaccine confidence when people hear from the medical experts that are saying this stuff works. But as long as we understand that, it's not going to make us bulletproof. And I guess maybe the best example of that is the United States, who are feeling pretty good about themselves, as they should be, uh, with the way their vaccine program is rolled out. President Biden said he wanted to get, what was it, 100 million people, I guess, vaccinated within the first 100 days. And it's going to be over 200 million, which is great. But their case numbers are still going up. Uh, so the vaccine isn't the be-all in, in this. I mean, we still have to, to, to play ball with the other preventative measures that we've talked about. Absolutely. And I mean, us being at this point now where it's been over a year that, you know, we've been dealing with with this pandemic, it, people can't be blamed for just wanting to say, OK, I'm going to get this jab and be done with this and we can go on to a, a, you know, some kind of normal. Like, I mean, of course, we're all feeling that way. But yeah, at the same time, like, obviously, um, it's, a, it's, it's a highly complex thing. And as cases keep rising, even as vaccines keep rising, there's obviously a need for us to continue to be diligent around the social distancing and governments are going to have to, you know, continue with that messaging and try to make sure that that's being internalized. Even as the summer comes on, even as people get more people get vaccinated, you know, like it's, it's going to be tricky. They're going to enter into a new phase of this COVID management where they are managing those different levels of confidence and expectations and what we should be doing in some ways it might've been easier when the message was just stay home we have no vaccine, do not go near anyone you don't live with. Like now the messaging is a bit more complicated. But what complicates the complication, I guess, uh, is as have we been, based on, on what we've heard from our elected officials right now, that, that, that that's all causing, I think, an erosion of our confidence in them. Uh, so the people that are supposed to be giving us that message right now don't necessarily have our full confidence. Well, that's it. And I mean, you saw during the, the peak of the pandemic period, confidence in governments tend to go up, right? Because lots of things can happen to kind of encourage that. But we do see at that time, some of the usual politics kind of die down. You don't see opposition parties, <coughs> excuse me, get, get as, you know, into the, the fray with, with governments. Like there's more of a kind of acceptance. Okay, this is what we have to do. But at the same time, that can't last forever. And part of the opposition's job is to create um, some pushback around, you know, and some questions around what the government's doing and how it's doing it. And that's part of parliamentary accountability and government accountability. But yeah, I mean, it does sometimes when we hear mixed messages, it's hard then to be totally trusting of anyone because we're wondering, you know, what kind of motivation do you have for saying that? Like even now there are questions being raised around, you know, why are vaccines being directed at some, some, you know, parts of the province and not other parts and is there any political motivation for that and so once you get down that kind of road it becomes really hard and we we still need that trust we absolutely do or else this is going to be even worse than it already is but it's hard when there are those mixed messages and we hear them all the time exactly Uh, doctor always a pleasure thanks so much for the time today great talking with you thank you too take care
Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.